Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to Merrick's Expert, the podcast series of the Mercator Institute for China Studies. My name is Kerstin Lose-Friedrich and my colleague Helena Legada, senior analyst at Merrick's, is joining me today. We want to take a closer look at China's and Europe's role in geopolitical competition. Helena, you just published an article called Engaging in Effective Geopolitical Competition as part of the latest MPOC, the Merrick's Papers on China, titled Towards a Principles First Approach in Europe's China Policy. In recent years, China has taken on a more confident and aggressive role as a global actor by expanding economically, politically and militarily, becoming a force to be reckoned with in virtually all aspects of geopolitical competition. Xi Jinping has made it clear that China has ambitions to become a global power by 2049. Helena, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected these ambitions? Um, thank you, Kerstin. That's a really good question. I think... The first thing to keep in mind is that China's more aggressive global presence is not necessarily a new trend. This is something that has been going on for a while, and it's just accelerated over the last few years because the Communist Party, because Xi Jinping sees this as what they call a period of strategic opportunity, which basically means that they feel they have the, the space right now to advance in some of these goals without facing too much backlash because they are strong enough after a few decades of economic growth and modernization and because the West is debilitated and weaker. So when you when you keep that in mind, it, it's, it explains quite well how China behaved during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what we saw during the pandemic is that since China controlled the outbreak domestically inside the, their borders, Before the West did, what Beijing did is it took that opportunity to push in a lot of these areas uh, and to sort of make advances. And we saw that very clearly, for example, in the South China Sea or around Taiwan, where China conducted uh, higher numbers of military exercises, or even in the disputed border with India, where there's been a few clashes recently. What happened, however, is that Beijing, I think, probably expected not to face too much opposition to these moves, but the opposite happened. It's unclear whether this was a miscalculation or whether the Chinese authorities were expecting it and simply didn't care. Uh, but regardless, what has happened, instead of China being able to make advances without opposition, is that there has been a substantial international backlash against China's activities and behavior in the in the global stage. Uh, not only from the US, which again was ongoing because of the US-China tensions and, and trade war, but also from countries in Europe and elsewhere in the world. Um, it seems as if Beijing had managed to get countries to align with the US, something that the US had been pursuing for a few years and it had failed to achieve. So when you look at Europe, for example, you had the majority of member states trying not to pick sides, as they say, uh, trying not to appear to be too close to China or too close to the US. They wanted to maintain good relations with both. And we're seeing that turning. And that, to a certain extent, is Beijing's doing. Where and how does China pose challenges to Europe? 
Um, so there's a number of, of regions and domains uh, where China's challenges to European interests and security are most evident. Um, given Europe's role as a geopolitical actor at the moment, which is still quite limited, uh, we're looking in particular at Europe's wider neighborhood. So the Western Balkans are a very clear region where China is becoming more and more involved through mostly financing and loans and investments channeled through the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, this is also quite evident in the MENA region, in the Middle East and North Africa, where China is also becoming an, a more and more important actor, even though traditionally they haven't really had a presence in, in the region. And these, of course, the Western Balkans and the MENA region, since they are areas that border Europe, they are, of course, of key strategic importance to the EU and, and to its member states. Uh, but beyond sort of Europe's borders and, and neighborhood, um, China also poses a clear challenge to European interests in the Indo-Pacific, so much closer to home. Um, in the Indo-Pacific, especially when we look at the South China Sea, at Taiwan, etc., uh, there's a clear chance of a potential military confrontation with the U.S., which is something that Europe should be paying attention to. But also, China is also challenging the kind of norms, standards, and principles that the EU is committed to uphold internationally. Uh, there's some challenges from Beijing to the rules-based international order that, of course, clash with European interests. So that's another region that Europe should be looking into quite closely. And a third domain, I would say, is probably the Arctic. In that region, uh, relations with China have been quite, quite friendly and, and quite positive. However, there's also a potential for things to get a lot more complicated in the Arctic. And we're talking again about norms and standards, so China trying to develop norms for how the Arctic should be governed in the future, which clash with European interests. Uh, we're talking also about China-Russia relations, which of course is of, of clear concern to, to Europe. Um, and we're talking as well about Chinese economic investments and infrastructure in the region and the impact they may, that may have on environmental and social standards that the EU defends and upholds. Uh, these are only some of the regions. Of course, there's loads of other areas of the world where China also uh, engages in geopolitical competition with Europe and, and with the West. But I believe that these are some of the most important ones and kind of the most pressing challenges that Europe should be looking into at the moment. Would you say that EU member states did neglect the uh, geopolitical dimension while engaging with China? Uh, unfortunately, I do believe that is the case. Um, this is not true across the board, of course, but the majority of European member states have been um, laser focused on economic engagement with China. So we're talking trade, we're talking investment, etc. And what that has meant is that they've tended to leave aside the more political or strategic aspects of their relationship in a bid to maintain positive economic relations with China, um, which also benefits Europe itself. Uh, they've tried to ignore all the more contentious aspects of China's international behavior. Uh, and again, this hasn't been true across the board, but for the majority of European member states, this is exactly what it is. Uh, so it is only now that we are seeing Europe, 
a little bit more broadly and a lot of the larger member states and many of the smaller ones as well, starting to consider what sort of actor China is globally, what its interests and ambitions are and what this means for Europe. So we are a little bit behind on this. Ursula von der Leyen, the new president of the European Commission, has pledged to lead a geopolitical commission that would see Europe develop greater strategic autonomy. What do you think Europe should do with regards to China's geopolitical ambitions? This is going to require, I think, uh, a very mixed approach by Europe. Step number one, I think, is going to be for, for Europe, for the EU, for the member states to decide what exactly... Europe being a geopolitical actor means. Uh, that's step number one. Um, but when it comes to China and what we can do about it, of course, this is going to be different depending on, on the issue area or the region that we're looking at. But overall, I like to say that there are sort of three general principles that I think Europe should be following when it comes to geopolitical competition with China. First of all, it's very important for Europe to provide a credible alternative to China. This is especially true when it comes to the investment and financing issue that I was mentioning earlier. When you look at the Western Balkans, when you look at the MENA region, a lot of the kind of inroads that China's making into those regions are through investment and financing. And that is an area where the EU is strong and where the EU can compete. It just needs to provide a credible alternative to those countries, to Chinese investment and to the BRI. A second principle, I would say, is to work more closely with allies and like-minded partners to push back against some of China's most negative and most damaging behavior internationally. And this is particularly true, for example, in the Indo-Pacific region. The EU and its member states doesn't have a huge presence in the region, and especially not militarily. Um, in fact, it's almost non-existent. However, this doesn't mean that the EU and its member states don't have an interest in how things develop in the region and in the geopolitical competition that we're seeing between China and the United States in the Indo-Pacific. So this would require Europe to just work more closely not just with the US, but with other partners in the region and other like-minded states. And we are talking about Australia, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN states. So there's something that Europe could do there. It's just maybe not as a kind of individual actor. And a third principle that I think we often forget about when we're talking about geopolitical competition with China, especially at this time of rising tensions with the US, is to cooperate where possible and appropriate. Even though China's more aggressive international behavior tends to clash with European interest and sometimes even European security, this doesn't mean that there aren't areas where cooperation is possible. For example, when you look at the Western Balkans and you look at infrastructure investments, Europe also has an interest in developing infrastructure in the region. So if Chinese projects follow European norms and standards, there should be no reason not to cooperate. Or when you're looking, for example, at Chinese involvement in kind of the more, more in the security and defense realm, but Chinese involvement in peacekeeping operations or in the counter-piracy operation off the Gulf of Aden, 
those are issue areas where cooperation with Europe is possible. So we need to be quite clear about where our interests converge or diverge with, with China's and with what China's doing, and then go from there. The Indo-Pacific has become a major area of geopolitical competition, as you also roll out in your article, uh, especially between China and the US. Uh, on the very day of Wang Yi's visit to Berlin, the German government approved its Indo-Pacific strategy. It's intended to underscore democratic partnerships and diversification in Asia and provide a basis for European cooperation. What do you make of it? The Indo-Pacific guidelines are quite interesting. Uh, precisely because Germany doesn't have a huge presence in the Indo-Pacific, as I mentioned earlier, uh, especially not militarily. What this reflects, to my mind, it's a realization and an acknowledgement at the level of the German government that the Indo-Pacific is important. It's important to Germany, it's important to Europe, and that we need to become a more active actor in that region. And that may not be on the military side of things, but there's other things that we can do. Um, the guidelines also mention that this is meant to be a starting point for a Europe-wide strategy or policy towards the Indo-Pacific. And as such, it's quite broad in nature. So it covers a lot of different areas. It, it covers issues related to, to the environment, to trade and freedom of navigation, security and, and democratic processes. So as I said, it's very broad. There are some concrete initiatives in there, but I think this should be seen as a starting point and a signal that Germany and Europe are starting to realize and acknowledge that the Indo-Pacific is too important to ignore and that they are trying to come up with a position to the issues that are relevant to the region and to the world at large. How did the Chinese side react to this paper? As far as I know, the reaction has been quite muted. I mean, the, the Indo-Pacific guidelines that the German government published actually barely mention China at all. Uh, They're a lot more general. They talk about cooperation with like-minded partners, etc. So the Chinese side, well, I can imagine that they are not exactly happy about Germany's use of the term Indo-Pacific, Uh, which seems to suggest an alignment with the United States. They probably don't have all that much to complain about when it comes to the content. Um, again, a lot of the Indo-Pacific guidelines are about cooperation and doing things together and multilateralism. Uh, so there isn't anything in there that China could construe as an attempt to contain China, which is always their biggest complaint. I mean, there's, of course, a few elements that could point in that direction, but it's not one of the goals of the of this strategy at all. Thank you, Helena. Thank you very much. I talked to Helena Legada, my colleague here at Merrick. She's senior analyst in the field of foreign and security policy. Thanks for joining. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.